In the name of the loving, life-giving, and liberating God, who is Blessed Trinity, amen. amen. You may be seated. There are certain texts in both the Old and New Testaments that have been come to call texts of terror by biblical scholars. These texts of terror reinforce societal messages of misogyny, violence, and oppression, the largest example of which is slavery. There are multiple texts that have been used historically by the church to justify slavery to the detriment of all. We have learned now to read these texts through a lens of love and to denounce slavery and other forms of oppression. But there was a time in our history when that was not the case. Traditionally, this text on divorce and remarriage has not been seen as one of those texts of terror. But I have been in the church long enough to see how this text has been used to the detriment of all involved. So I approach it knowing that it has been used to harm many of you and wanting to bring healing and wholeness from the pain that has been caused by the church. So I want to begin by telling you that you are not in a state of sin if you are divorced or you are remarried. There are ways that we can sin or be sinned against in both of those situations, just as we can sin in marriage or in singleness. But by the time we get to divorce, the separation has already occurred, and I have often seen how remarriage is a blessing. I say this both from a place of observing the law of love enacted in Jesus' life and from observing the whole happy, healthy relationships of those who have been divorced and remarried. Both of those experiences tell me that divorce is sometimes necessary for the health of a couple, and that remarriage has been a blessing to many who have been able to do so. And so today, I want to walk you through how I can come to that conclusion without completely tossing out this passage. And I think it will be helpful to you, not only here, but with many passages that give us difficulty. The first difficulty we come to in reading this passage is that not only is this the Bible that we are reading, but these are Jesus' words. Many of us who can read other passages of scriptures attributed to Paul or Moses as products of a particular time or place have trouble applying the same contextual lens to Jesus. Jesus is, after all, one person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. Surely, Jesus wouldn't have said something that wasn't true. But we can't just pick up something from 2,000 years ago and expect to understand it without any help. This is where context is especially needed. If we need to know the time and place of Paul and Moses, then we need to know the same for Jesus, even though Jesus is God, because God has always spoken to us exactly where we are. God speaks to our context. First, it is helpful to remember that this passage occurs within a large section in Mark that is exploring the cost of discipleship. 
We have already spent three weeks exploring the way of the cross and how to relate to the least. Next week, we will hear the financial cost of following Jesus. Then we will hear of the personal cost as the disciples again try to vie for a position of power at Jesus' right hand. Our lectionary makes this feel like a separate episode, but in Mark, the subject has not yet changed. So this teaching on divorce lands in the middle of a discussion about the cost of discipleship. And because of that, we need to ask, what does this question have to do with discipleship? I also want you to remember that not only did the gospel writers write down what Jesus had said, they wrote it down in a specific order and with specific emphases to address the problems of the people who would receive their account. There is a layer of interpretation between us and the text. Mark was writing to a group of heavily persecuted Christians. The earliest of the Gospels, these new Christians were struggling with persecution and death, but also how to live a Christian life. This question may have been chosen because early Christians practiced asceticism, the giving up of earthly pleasures, in particular practicing sexual abstinence. Like some of the Christians Paul addressed, they may have found themselves married to someone who did not become a Christian with them. They may have felt called to be an itinerant preacher themselves after hearing the good news, all of these things have big implications for marriage. So the Pharisees' question may have been used to ask a more general question. Is marriage compatible with living a Christian life? Can I be a disciple of Christ if I am married? Or what if I'm married to someone who isn't a Christian? Paul, of course, preferred singleness. And that is, for some, is truly a calling on their life. But in his answer, Jesus lets us know that marriage is compatible with the Christian life. In fact, Jesus takes us back to Genesis to affirm that the union of two souls began at creation. This does not negate Paul's celibacy or his singleness. Neither does it exhaustively list all the forms those two souls could take. It does not make any of us half a person until we find our other half. What it does do is clue us into the sacredness of marriage, the formation of a new family, separate yet connected to the families that raised us. It also lets us know that becoming a disciple of Christ does not negate our marriage or require us to marry someone else. We know that by stepping into a marriage, we are forming bonds of intimacy and trust, which are not easily or lightly broken, even by discipleship. But we also know from our own experiences that sometimes those bonds are broken for us by other things, perhaps by an abusive partner. Other times, both partners may have a hand in cutting the ties, or outside forces may have proved too much. In many, if not all, cases, the divorce is only a civil recognition of the severance which has already occurred in the marriage. Even knowing the context which may have inspired the question, 
It is hard to hear in the text. What God has joined together, let no one separate. If we have gone through a divorce, or divorce and later remarriage. I think first and foremost, these words acknowledge that marriage is a deep bond. Even when divorce is the best option, it is still painful. So I encourage you to lay any hurt before God. We know that Jesus knows our brokenness, how we hurt each other. There is not a single conversation that can capture the nuance that God has in dealing with us. That is why we have four Gospels. Even when the stories repeat, each Gospel captures a slightly different picture of how Jesus dealt with us in love during his life. So here in Mark, we get a strong statement about how important marriage is. In Matthew, an exception is given for divorce. We also know that Paul allows for divorce and possibly for remarriage as well. And I know if anyone who has experienced or will experience a divorce sat knee to knee with Jesus, he would talk to each of you with the love that only God can give. All our experiences are different. And though the goal in marriage is to enter into a lifelong covenant with another person, Jesus knows it won't always happen. Jesus still has love for each of us. And I think that love includes the possibility of a new marriage. I have seen how people who have entered into a new marriage after divorce have been blessed and have been healed by the love of a new partner. Such a blessing cannot be outside of God. I think Jesus, as always, is simply concerned that we think through our decisions and that we value our relationships. This never means that a person being abused has an obligation to try to save an abuser. It does mean that our relationships have meaning and weight. And when we are on equal footing, Love should be our guiding force. Our lives are deeply nuanced, and God's grace is wide enough to embrace every part of us. Jesus spoke and lived in a particular time and place because there is no other way to be human. And that is as God designed. As we hear Jesus or anyone speak in our scriptures, we need to remember that we all speak within a particular context, one which we may not understand at first glance, and that God has always condescended to talk to us in our own here and now. We know that Jesus preached love of God and love of neighbor, and that those two commands form every part of our ethic as we seek to live out the kingdom of God here on earth. So we hear from Jesus today that our relationships are paramount and that marriage in particular is a deep bond which is to be cherished and not easily broken. But we also hear our Savior say to all our broken parts, go, your faith has made you well. Be healed and flourish. 
Our God is love. And the deep joy of the Trinity is that we love and be loved in any form that that takes. Amen.